Hello from Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News. This is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. And you know, it was really nice of the Idaho legislature to make sure to schedule Education Week around our 100th edition of Extra Credit. So we have plenty to talk about on this milestone edition of Extra Credit. And it is the 100th episode of Extra Credit, but I have to confess, I lost two episodes last summer, uh, so it should have been our 100th episode first of the year. Yeah, so I right. apologize. But, you know, and when we put out the box set, hopefully we'll be able to recapture <laughs> those and you can go back and hear what you didn't hear in 2017. But we have plenty to talk about in 2018, especially this Education Week. And for those who aren't at the state house and aren't, uh, you know, immersed in all of this, Education Week basically means that this was a solid week of budget presentations on education, on uh, K-12, uh, from the universities, from the junior colleges. They were all there. Pretty much all week was devoted to breaking down, you know, 60% of the budget, which goes towards education in one form or another. We were both there for Sherry Barr's presentation Thursday. You took the lead on writing about it, so take the lead on explaining how it all went. Yeah, this was kind of, this is sort of the biggest hearing of the year for us every year. Uh, Sherry Barra made her formal request to the lawmakers, to the Joint Finance Appropriations Committee, to increase public school funding by 68 percent next year. That's about $113 million uh, in new spending over current levels. And it's, uh, like you said, it's a big deal just because the amount of money uh, that is involved. So if you ever wonder why you should be paying attention to this, if you care about your tax dollars and how they're spent and the education of our children, uh, like you said, with all the education budgets added together, it's a little over 60 percent of all state general fund spending every year. But when we talk about K-12 public education, that alone is like 48% mm-hmm. of the state's budget. We're talking or almost to the $1.8 billion spending mark uh, for K-12 public schools uh, in the general fund budget for next year. And so right off the bat, um, no real surprises. No. And I want to say no real surprises because Superintendent Ibarra released her budget uh, to us and to the public back in September, so we had a chance to dive through it. But as expected, uh, she led off with a call to fund a fourth year of raises and benefits for teachers and educators across the state through the career ladder salary law. Uh, More than $40 million of her new budget request would go just towards these raises. And she said, Kevin, that that was the top priority that she'd heard from the field. And we've also seen some reports the teacher turnover, teacher retention has been a, a big issue, increasingly so in the past right, year. Right, right. I mean, her shop released a report on teacher turnover on Monday uh, at the launch of Education Week. Pretty sobering numbers. I mean, we want to dig in and, and get a better sense of how they got these numbers, but I mean, they're talking about almost a 20% uh, teacher turnover rate year to year. I mean, that's that's pretty staggering. That's a big job for school districts and charters to have to deal with year in and year out. So, uh, obviously, retention is... Uh, a, pretty big issue on uh, Abara's radar. Yeah, and so this is all part of when we talked about the teacher raises uh, a few years ago, 2015, I believe it was, the legislature approved the career ladder salary law. You've heard us talk about that. You've seen us write about that. That's basically a five-year plan, approximately $250 million uh, to incrementally raise uh, teacher pay, especially starting teacher pay, to get uh, towards that issue of recruitment and retention. So that was the number one uh, priority within the superintendent's budget. And I think that that was very positively received. I think a lot of people are on the same page. Uh, you hear educators say that. You hear the le- leaders of education groups say that. And I think most lawmakers view it as a five-year commitment 
so that looks safe. That was pretty uh, standard, uh, pretty much expected. And, and so the top priority uh, looks safe. We also saw uh, some requests in there to increase funding for uh, technology for the mm -hmm. classroom and professional development. Sometimes school districts call that operations funding, but those were two of the really other big pieces along with teacher pay. Uh, classroom technology, um, which uh, she's asking for almost $9 million more, $8.6 million more for classroom technology, and then $19 million more combined for this discretionary funding, operations funding, and then within that nine, $19 million, she would carve out $7.2 million and just earmark that for health insurance, health care costs for school districts, and which is a, a big issue that we've heard about and that has really uh, been a talking point as we set education budgets. It's a big issue for school districts and charters, and it's a decision point for, for JFAC, for, sure. the, for the budget committee, because uh, while Ibarra is talking about this increase and trying to put some more money into, uh, in, into the pool for, uh, for covering benefits, that did not appear in Governor Otter's budget. So when it gets down to making decisions about what this budget looks like, that's something that uh, JFAC is going to you know, weigh in on one way or the other. Sure, and even though it was Superintendent Ybarra's budget hearing on Thursday morning, we were both there bright and early, uh, even though it was her budget hearing, several lawmakers, or a couple lawmakers, called out pointed questions to the governor's staff about why that was not in there. I had a chance to speak with um, Representative Wendy Horman. She's an Idaho Falls Republican on that joint budget mm -hmm. committee. Uh, Kevin, and as you know... she'll probably be the one who winds up writing the uh, K-12 budget. Right, so that, that's why I sought her out. She said it's important for her... Uh, to, and she's also involved with the legislature's interim school funding committee. So she's really involved with school finance and school funding. But she told me it was really important to her uh, to meet those operations funding needs and health care needs for school districts. Uh, she said that's important to fund. And she said that this is probably going to require a little bit of a balancing act when it comes to actually doing the hard work of setting the budgets a few weeks down the road here. She said she may have to... Uh, possibly diminish some of the funding for some of the line items uh, that the superintendent requested in order to cover discretionary operations, health care funding, and still not exceed the legislature's revenue right. target. So we do anticipate a little bit of a, of a balancing act, but that was the key difference. Uh, the governor laid out his budget request on the first day of the session during the State of the State address. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Superintendent Ibarra's turn. Uh, there are these massive $1.8 billion budgets. There's only about $13 million or so difference between the two. It's a very small difference, but really um, it's easy to think about discretionary funding, operations funding, health care funding, essentially accounting for the difference between those two budgets and essentially representing the decision that budget writers will have to make. Okay, so we've set the stage a little bit about what is going to be on JFAC's uh, plate when they take up the K-12 budgets. But let's shift gears a little bit to talk about this K-12 budget because, attention Idaho reporters, we're in the middle of an election year uh, and Sherry Ibarra faces a primary opponent in May. You had a chance to talk to uh, Jeff Dillon, uh, her opponent, uh, after the presentation. What, what did he have to say? That was kind of the interesting thing about it. He actually he sat in the same room as, as she gave her presentation. And, and so just with the political context, that was kind of interesting. I visited with him after the presentation. He said the overall presentation, look, it was fine. But when it comes to the details, he had a few concerns. He suggested that her budget presentation, her budget request was not data-driven. He would have liked to have seen specific, he called it polling data, but essentially specific reports 
Uh, breakout school districts, West Ada, Boise, Idaho Falls, Pocatello, and beyond. How are they using the money that they got this year, and what are they specifically asking for for next year? He would have liked to have seen that in there. He had some questions about um, some of the proposals in Ibarra's budget. He said uh, when it comes to professional development, which is training for teachers, mm-hmm. he said is investing more money in professional development the right idea or after all this time do we need a different approach he said he would like to see more funding for mastery based education kind of interestingly he said his top concern being out in the field helping implement her budget at the local level in the wilder school district he said his top concern is teachers and a teacher shortage and what do we do about our educators and i asked him about that and he said that he hasn't seen data that conclusively proves whether the career ladder has moved the needle with recruitment and retention. So it's kind of interesting, same top priority, teacher shortage, but a little disagreement from Jeff Dillon about whether the preferred solution is working or not. He didn't have an alternative in mind, just full disclosure. Right, and I think he's right when he says that there's no data about the effectiveness of the career ladder. And I, I have not heard Abara's office suggest that there is, and I've certainly not seen any, any empirical data three years in about what this career ladder is doing. What Abara's... Other than the money said, that's making it into right. the... Right. I mean, we've, we know we've chronicled that. what's happening in terms of average salaries, and we had that story last week, and you can still find that uh, at idahoednews.org. But our shop has been pretty careful to say, look, we don't have hard evidence yet, and it's going to take a while to have that kind of evidence. They're suggesting that the anecdotal evidence suggests that this is making some difference in terms of recruitment and retention. Now, even when we're talking about almost a 20% teacher turnover rate, uh, they're saying that there is is some evidence that this is helping maybe stem that tide a little bit. But, uh, you know, it's obviously a debate that we're going to hear a lot about in this race, probably in some of the other elections as uh, as we get into the races in 2018. Yeah, and it was interesting just in the fact that the primary uh, for the superintendent's race and for the governor's race and all the big elections, primary is coming up in May. It hasn't really heated up yet in the superintendent's race. We it's haven't seen... We haven't seen much of anything uh, in terms of a presence, in terms of events, in terms of marketing, uh, in terms of uh, holding press conferences and laying out plans or meeting with voters or meeting with school districts. We just haven't seen that. And so maybe now that the budget proposals are out there, maybe now that Jeff Dillon is starting to pick apart Superintendent Ibarra's budget presentation, maybe we will get to that point where we have these serious policy discussions, where we talk about the issues ahead of the primary Hasn't really happened yet, though. And just as an aside and something to look for next week, uh, the candidates for state office have an important deadline coming up January 31st to submit their fundraising reports. Uh, That would cover the second half of 2017. So it'll give us some evidence when we get those numbers what's happening in the superintendent's race or either the candidates out really raising any money. Definitely won't want to watch the gubernatorial candidates, and we'll get to that. But just as an aside, that's uh, on my plate for next week is to see what those uh, sunshine reports have to say. And speaking of a slow superintendent's race, I've pointed it out before, still have yet to see a Democrat enter the race. Uh, Mm -hmm. Democrats had a fairly strong showing uh, in 2014, made it a close race. That is the last statewide elected office, I believe, that a Democrat in Idaho has held uh, less than, well, we're five, five months away from the primary, have not seen a candidate yet. I don't know what the heck's going on. Uh, but maybe we'll get one. When we hear, we'll let you know, and we'll keep an eye on what's happening in this primary. 
But we also had a lot of stuff going on this week. As we mentioned, Education Week, and it really kicked off with uh, the State Board of Education and, and then with the university presidents, the two- and the four-year colleges, and that was uh, where I started my week. As JFAC really started to dig into this whole proposal about a higher ed CEO. And you got some more, you saw some more pointed questions in this area, Kevin, perhaps more pointed questions than the superintendent got on any of her budget proposals. Separate budget proposal, separate budget, but we're t- we've talked about the issue that Governor Otter has recommended a higher ed CEO to come in and perhaps realize some efficiencies and some back office type of savings and reinvest that uh, into higher ed. But uh, what were what were lawmakers saying and and what kind of questions? Uh, were folks getting about this proposal? It, it was a, it was an interesting mood in the room Monday morning because this was really the first time a legislative committee has had a chance to kind of drill down on the CEO proposal. Right. And uh, the the members of the budget committee, several of them, had uh, pretty uh, pointed questions about how this is going to work. Well, what's the structure going to be? I mean, where are we going to fit the CEO within the structure of the State Board of Education? What what does the org chart look like? I mean, just kind of basic details about what is this going to look like. Because the State Board of Education already has an executive director position. Right. And I, and the argument has always been that the State Board, you know, as a unit, and Matt Freeman as the executive director, they've got enough to do right now. That They're a, a lean operation, and they can't take on this enormous task of trying to find savings within the university system, hence the push for a CEO. But... You know, getting down to the details of, well, what is that going to look like? What's the job description? That still is in, in the works. Very interesting question, uh, and it came from Mary Souza, a Coeur d'Alene Republican. She asked Matt Freeman, who was kind of one of the folks making the presentation, okay, you're modeling this idea, this Idaho idea, after the state of Maine, which had to do a bunch of savings, had to find a bunch of savings during the recession, and, and went with kind of the streamlining plan. Well, how much did they save? And Freeman really didn't have a hard answer, a hard figure. He did say that Maine has managed to freeze tuition over six years, and that's kind of a big deal, uh, especially for for students and parents, obviously. The Maine comparison is a little bit of a tricky one, too, because Maine did hire a chancellor. And there's a big difference between a chancellor and a CEO. Chancellor is a word we're not using out loud here in Idaho. That is the C word that nobody wants to use when they talk about CEO because... Uh, the idea is that a chancellor has a lot more jurisdiction over the academics. Uh, the CEO, as is, is envisioned, would be more of an administrative head who looks for savings in you know, HR or IT. Systemness or is a word systemness, we hear. Uh, a word I never thought I'd use this yeah, often. Yeah. But that was that's the whole idea. Let's look within the administrative functions to find savings, and let's leave the university presidents to do uh, academics. You know, my, my sense, watching the committee, I didn't sense a whole lot of enthusiasm for this proposal. And then, as kind of a double whammy, you know, the next day they have Bob Kustra in for his presentation. And he was asked, uh, well, what do you make of the CEO proposal? And not surprisingly, he's very skeptical. I mean, he expressed skepticism when I talked to him uh, back in November. And he kind of restated that. He said, you know, look, I, we've studied it. We just don't see where there's a whole lot of savings here. Uh, he suggested something um, that I think is something to watch for is the idea of, well, the governor's talked about trying to hire a consultant to try to quantify what kind of yep. savings you can find, as well as hiring the CEO. He wants to do both at the same time. What Custer said, and I heard you know, Wendy Horman float the idea in JFAC the day before, is 
well, let's hire a consultant. Let's do the consulting study. Let's try to get a sense of what what's on the table in terms of savings and then make the decision down the road. You know, if I had a bet, I think that's much more likely uh, an outcome than the legislature approving the CEO and creating the CEO position at $200,000 a year salary. I, I The consulting money is one-time money. And what, $500,000? It, it, it's a $500,000 line item in the governor's budget. There's no, you know, the legislature's not, you know, compelled to have to spend 500000 They could come back and say, well, we'll give you some other figure, some lower figure. They can... They can massage that number, and it's one-time money. You do the study, and you see what you wind up with. So, you know, that would be, if I had to bet any amount of money that I cared about, that's probably where I would bet. You'll see some consulting money, but you probably won't see the CEO. That's just my read of the situation so far, but a long way to go. I haven't think, seen a bill yet. I think that that's a smart bet, Kevin. Like you said, uh, we don't get a vote. They don't ask us before they cast their votes, but I think that's a smart line of thinking for a couple of reasons. Uh, Number one, lawmakers in an election year are being asked to essentially expand state government and create the new highest paid official in all of state government is what this would be. That's what we're talking about And that was the aha moment I had when Marilyn Whitney from the governor's office said that in a state board meeting, you know, this is going to be, if it's created, the highest paid state government employee, not counting university presidents and football and basketball coaches. I mean, those are on the campuses but within state government, highest paid position. And I don't think that's a really good argument. That uh, might be a tough Leaving it out of the gate and saying, an hey, we're creating year. the biggest uh, biggest salary in state government. That's not going to fly with some folks over at That's the a tough house. sell going to Republican voters in contested Republican primaries. The other thing to look out for, we're going to have a new governor next year. We already right. know that. We don't know who the new governor is going to be or what he or she thinks about this higher ed CEO proposal, whether they would even want to continue funding for it. Uh, beyond next year. And we also expect that there's going to be uh, different heads of JFAC next year. A lot of political change coming. I don't know that this legislature has the appetite to expand government and create the highest paid position in state government uh, in, in this election year. Yeah, I don't I, see it. Yeah, that's that's part of my thinking here, too. And again, we're not talking about the merits of this proposal. We're just handicapping what, what's going to happen here. Sure. So. We'll see if we're right or wrong. We'll have some answers here in the next few weeks as this uh, unfolds. Beyond Quickly, that, though, yeah. um, scholarships and higher education affordability and attainability uh, were issues, and, and, and we've seen some of those areas in the budget. But uh, what 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 was some of what you were seeing in those areas? Well, kind of a recurring theme from the uh, university presidents and the college presidents is um, you know centers on affordability, and it centers on. Uh, the governor's proposal here to expand the Opportunity Scholarship Program. The governor wants to increase that from $10 million a year to $15 million a year. That's still not enough to meet all the need. I mean, there's a lot of unmet need. Students who qualify for the money but don't get a share of it because the money, (laughs) there's only so much to go around. And Otter wants to put a percentage of this money into this Adult Completer Scholarship. That's been an unpopular notion at the State House the past couple of sessions. It was kind of interesting, kind of fun. Uh, Burke Glendon, who's the president of the College of Western Idaho, which is growing like crazy, uh, was speaking to the Senate Education Committee, and, and he almost dropped an F-bomb. <laughs> he, he, he was talking about students returning to college, older students, and, you know, let's face it, that's a big part of CWI's uh, constituency. Older students going back to college, trying to get an associate's degree, uh, try to get their education back on track, juggling work and family and everything. 
he said that for a lot of older students, there's this real fear, this real terrifying fear of coming onto a campus when you've been gone for a few for a while, and you're, and you're thinking to yourself, "What the? Have I gotten myself into?" And he stopped himself, and there was a lot of levity in the in the committee. But his point about the adult completer scholarship is maybe we just need to give these uh, uh, you know non traditional students just one more boost, just one more incentive to to get in the door. Because once they get in the door, a lot of times they get over their fears. It's like, hey, I can handle this, but maybe we just need a little bit more of an inducement. So who's making the case? We'll see. I mean, that's been a tough sell around the, the legislature, but to a person, the college and university presidents were saying, look, this is an area of, of need. You got a lot of folks who could qualify for that money. Uh, if you're trying to get to that 60% goal, these are folks that we need to get into the system. It's pretty clear what the state of Idaho did it's very sobering, but it's pretty clear what the state of Idaho did over the past 10 years didn't really move the needle on that 60% goal. And folks were alternating between disappointed and embarrassed. Right. And I think the storyline that I've heard now, as we look at that 60% goal seven years later, and it came up a lot in the series I did back in, in December, is we've got to figure out new ways to get new... Uh, people into the college system, into the post-secondary system. Um, if we're not going to get to the 60% goal just by getting more 18-year-olds to go into college right after high school, no. we still want to see those numbers go up. That's still a part of the equation, but it's not the whole of the equation. We so that's why you see this push on the adult completer scholarship. Uh, the phrase low-hanging fruit keeps getting bandied about, that if you can get more of these 25, 35-year-old students to go back to school um, that maybe uh, maybe that's going to help you get to that 60% goal. So, again, there's been a lot of skepticism about this idea, uh, and we'll just kind of wait and see how it uh, plays itself out it, in the weeks ahead. It is a complicated issue. We talk about capacity issues. We've heard the saying of a new Boise State or a second Boise State in order to... Two Boise States. If, I mean, if, if, you all, to get, if, if all these kids showed up next yeah. year, there would be no desks to put them in right. in order to meet the goal. That's um, that number, that 40,000 student number that keeps getting kicked around, that if you really want to get to a 60% goal, you got to get 40,000 more people into the system. They're not all going to show up at a traditional sure. campus because there's not really room for them anyway. So you got to figure out new ways to get them involved. You know, Maybe it's virtual education. Maybe it's uh, you know, you know, satellite uh Satellite completion, you know, satellite campuses, you, know, you name it. I think uh, there's a lot of kind of trying to figure out a way to expand the pool as opposed to uh, just continuing to build on the existing system that, you know, that we have that isn't getting us to the, the uh, 60% yeah. goal. A complicated problem. We'll continue to look at it, but no single solution, no easy solution, uh, at least making itself apparent so far. How are we doing so far? Have we covered... Uh, what you wanted to get to I, I, in the I, big I, themes from Education Week. I, I think we've got Education Week pretty well covered. If you want to get more details about any of this, we've got all of our stories up at idohednews.org. There's a lot to catch up on this week and uh, a lot for us to look for as this uh, whole process unfolds into next week in February and March and beyond. Yeah, uh, absolutely. We're going to continue to cover the legislature probably at least two more months uh, to go, we know that they will continue the rulemaking process, which is really what the education committees are busy finishing up uh, right now. We do expect science standards uh, to come up perhaps in early February. Look for that maybe to No debut. firm date set. No we'll... firm date as of now, but look for that to maybe uh, crop up first in the House Education Committee. 
as you remember last year, lawmakers approved only temporary science standards. They will expire this year, and they approved those temporary science standards only after first removing five references to climate change, human impact on the environment, those kind of things. I had a real interesting talk with Superintendent Sherry Ubarra. Mm -hmm. The state is gearing up, Kevin, as you know, uh, to pay for and launch a new science assessment, a new new science science test test that will be given to students. And this kind of gets a little bit ticklish because we're not really sure what our science standards Mm -hmm. are right now, but the state, Superintendent Ibarra told me that the state has to have a new science assessment. And so the question is, what are we going to assess students on? What questions will be on the test? What standards will we test them on? So in addition to the political uh, issues in play, which are certainly interesting and have been for the past two, maybe three sessions, really. And these uh, budget issues we've been talking about all, all morning. Yeah, yeah. now science standards you know, is going to resurface. Yeah, and, and the superintendent has said uh, many times, and this is true, that districts are free to go above and beyond the existing standards with what they teach in the classroom. But I know uh, many smaller schools especially are going to be looking for guidance. And, and really at this point... Uh, educators and administrators and school folks have a right to know what are our standards going to be, what are we going to be testing our kids on, what are we going to be paying for, what are we going to get when we pay for this new science assessment. So there's some very real-world concerns. Uh, The rubber's sort of meeting the road this year beyond just the political concerns that that committee has expressed. So look for that in early February. We'll let you guys know when we get um, a date certain. But uh, like you mentioned, this is our 100th podcast. We've had a lot of fun doing this a little over two years, and we really enjoy, uh, especially this time of year, being able to spend all day at the legislature and kind of share uh, what's happening with our readers and our listeners. And so thank you so much for going on this journey with us. Like I say, like we say, this is the 100th episode, so you know, I want to thank you all for listening. If you have listened to all 100 episodes, um, get help. <laughs> but no, really, I think we, we love having you all, all listen. And if you're listening for the first time, welcome. And uh, you know, we'll be at this for hopefully another 100 episodes or, or more, and uh, we'll, we'll keep walking you through what's happening week to week in Idaho education policy and politics. If you have listened to all 100 episodes, email me or message me on Twitter, and I will send you an Ed News t-shirt and an Ed News water bottle. But you'll have to prove it because we'll ask you, okay, in a, in a sentence, what was episode 43? No Googling. I mean, we're not going to just give the stuff away for nothing. Uh, but yeah, thanks so much. We've had a lot of fun. We're going to keep up uh, with the Extra Credit Podcast. If you want to follow uh, our breaking news in real time, now maybe check us out on Twitter, at Idaho Ed News. We post links to all our stories. We live tweet some of the big meetings. But as always, thanks so much for listening. Each and every week, we'll be back Friday with another new episode of Extra Credit. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.